Hi, and welcome to the East German Fashion History Podcast. Today we will be discussing the latter half of 60s fashion in the German Democratic Republic. I'll start with an overview of themes and then dive right into 1966, taking us all the way to 1970. And don't forget to check back on Friday where I'll have images, terms, and translations to accompany this episode, as well as a new review from Got a Hot Minute, where I feature weekend reads. And this Friday, I'll be reviewing the coffee table book Off the Wall. So overall, in the second half of the 60s, state and party leaders were really looking to increase revenue and further centralized management, which ended up causing complications down the line, and we'll see that with in this podcast. There was a general concern that Exquisite was drifting away from selling luxury goods, and there were multiple instances of masses of onlookers visiting stores, making comments about the price, the quality, and then leaving while people were trying to shop. The feeling of this being a precariously merchandised salon of GDR's best in fashion for an elite subset of people was really faltering. While there were recommendations to move stores to the second floors, that didn't prove fruitful in the end. Now, by the mid-60s, 20 to 30% of clothes circulating in the GDR came from the West, this figure would increase dramatically. And a large part of that was that the unofficial economy of the 60s that was going strong were the black and gray markets that would trade and barter. So if you had any sort of sewing skills, you could use that as a commodity in the hopes of getting that coveted item you've been dreaming of that was only available in the West. If you didn't have a connection or a relationship to the HAO, Handelsorganisation, or trading organization, which was the national retail business that we spoke of in the last episode, you were out of luck. And the same goes for if you were looking for a dress that you may have seen in Zabilla um, in the latest issue, and it was from the VEB Mass Atelier. If you didn't know anyone directly, you probably weren't going to find it. And this became a big source of complaint for Germans. There was even a satirical poem featured in the Frankfurter Rundschau. It was a West German publication, um, but with a note, this was also that this was a known sentiment in East Germany. And this is how it goes. I'll translate it. I'll read it in German and then translate it for you. So, beim Konsume keine Tante, beim HO keine Verwandte, aus dem West kein Paket. Und da fragt sie mir noch, wie es mir geht. In in the consume store, no aunt. In the HO store, no relatives. From the West, no package. And you still ask how I'm doing? So those are some themes we'll go into later and you'll see throughout the the length of this podcast. So we're going to start off with 1966. Now, the beginning of the second half of the 60s, for Zabilla at least, was really where they were at their height, um, redefining its their brand image by blending fashion photography with images of everyday modern life. The publication continued to highlight fashion culture throughout Eastern Europe. In the editorial Rund um Vakta, Vaktia Ukta, around the Vaktia Ukta, 
Günther Rösler photographed Budapest's historic shopping avenue with a romantic glimpse into the cafe scene and the livelihood of the streets. And I think this is a really beautiful comparison because at the same time in the, in the late 60s, you had a huge surge in fascination with Italy and Italian fashion in the States. And so while you had reports in American Vogue about traveling to Rome and the cafe societies of Paris, but specific, specifically Italy and Milan and all the beauties that there are to see, they were doing the same thing in East Germany, only you were going to Hungary, where a lot of people would go for, families would go for on vacation. And although there were still reports on fashion in Paris, there, they were more sporadic and, quite frankly, seemed like otherworldly forays into an unattainable luxury. The fourth issue of that year marked its 10th year, 10 year anniversary, which due to a difficult, difficulties in printing technology re- resulted in a late re- release. And the author of the article, Peta Toms, explained that because of a lack of resources, which was a growing issue throughout, there was a delay, but assured that the magazine had a newly trained team of specialists. And I think it's interesting to note that they mentioned that there were issues with publication with the publication because of a lack of resources and i think this was a growing sentiment seen throughout east germany and especially you know at the um at the level of at the retail level of like the ho stores and if you were to go to exquisite if you could afford anything but despite the hiccups such as these, the magazine did thrive for a time with really photographers like Arno Fisher, who captured, you know, the technology of the age, the dynamic movements of the time, and a young, independent, energetic woman. In its fifth issue of that year, Arno Fisher travels to Moscow to photograph the story in Moscow, this shows the powerhouse of the East Bloc, Moscow, and really shows a very empathetic gla- ga- gla- um, glaze glance to it. The editorial featured the Bolshoi Ballet, wintry scenery, and a portrait of the ballerina Maya Plisiskaya, and an extensive I- essay titled Love Letter to the City. By October, on the retail side of things, so by October in Leipzig, you had um, the Atelier Lucy Kaiser of Altenburg and th- their plans to open a high-quality atelier with 3,000 individually tailored pieces that cost an average of 1,000 marks, which is incredible. The project, though, was eventually downgraded and absorbed into exquisite stores. But at this time, exquisite stores were also experiencing a sense of stagnation. By the second half of 1966, purchasing negotiations became disheartening as inspectors or quality control managers from the German Office for Measures and Inspections of Goods that used a quality used to qualify classifications continued to reject men's shoes, women's shoes, clothes, and whatnot. And while store managers could also reject articles, they would eventually have to buy those products. So quality control and accepting denying goods was was another prevailing theme. 1967. A lot of the growing complaints um, that 
East German officials had been hearing may had been in part or were often in part, they found, because a lot of East German customers were comparing their products to West German products. And they were beginning and they were really beginning to see the the seams of the of the industry splitting. Market researchers also found that 40 million pieces of industrial manufactured ready-to-wear complemented by 30 million pieces of outerwear stemming from other sources. So what does this all mean? Essentially what this means is that a third of the women's wear outerwear that was bought was bought in stores and the rest was made by hand. It was estimated that a third of women's and girls' clothes were individually made. So throughout the GDR practices of home sewing and and other other techniques, that were used in times of scarcity were often used. And that included refashioning a garment, adding, adding lengthening parts and shortening the hems to fit into a few fashions, to fit into the newest fashions. And for comparison, while in the post-war women were making clothes out of military uniforms and linens, by the end of the 60s, women improvised solutions for outerwear by using celastic, which was a cheap cover used for pillows and cushions. So basically, the same practices that maybe their mothers had used in the interwar periods during World War II, they were now utilizing that and using these techniques for their own homes. By the end of the 1960s, market researchers increasingly argued that designing homemade clothing caused economic waste and went against the SED's social welfare goals. What they didn't comment on was that a lot of materials and a lot of product had been a lot of product would be rejected and would no longer see the light of day in a store so you know i think in terms of what was wasted what was wasted and for what in what context i don't think that can that can compare to the millions and millions of like shoes that may have been rejected at at for buying for buying for the exquisite store for an example now, in the late 60s, you naturally still had fashion shows, um, but it was clear that they were designed for an elite class, as told by a writer for the Eulenspiegel magazine, who covered the exclusive premiere show. And she said, goes on to say, quote, I had to conclude that the female portion of the population consists of 16 to at most 20-year-old feather-light beings whose primary occupation is being a wife and whose side job is supervising the cleaning lady, the cook, the nanny, and the chauffeur for the Wattwalk Eintausend. Side note, a Wattwalk Eintausend was one of the more expensive cars you could purchase in the GDR. For only such lady colleagues have the time to and the opportunity to wear turquoise satin suits or bright red pants complemented with wildly frilled lace blouses in in the morning only they have the only they have the necessary petty cash and they at their dis- disposal only they have connections to a certain store perhaps i've once again unnecessarily got myself all worked up so it's interesting that that she mentions that last part about 
having connection, having specific connections to an ha'o or maybe to an exquisite or a store. 1960s, in the second issue of, of 1967 of Zabila, the, so the theme of youth culture, which we talked about last week, still is still pretty strong. And that's further, further embellished upon in the editorial Studentenklub, which featured party dresses for celebrations. And that will be, I think those images will be on the blog. The fourth issue um, features a story, and this is something we also talked about last week, on this continued coverage of the chemical industry and its developments. So they had a editorial, and it's, it's a bit of a mouthful. I'm going to read it in German and then translate. A Modenschau für Arbeitskleidung im Bitterfelder Kulturpalast mit Beteiligung aller Verantwortlichen und Betroffenen. So that translates, the title of that piece translates to fashion, a fashion show for work clothing in the Bitterfelder Cultural Center for Industry prof- Professionals, which this was basically a report on a staged fashion show on appropriate workwear. And this really helped to better organize the situation at hand and marked a shift because, you know, it exposes a portrayal of working life in a very honest, in a, you know, very honest element and honest element and also very necessary. And also this was, you know, fundamentally different from what you would find in Ellen Vogue, of course. Ironically, though, they were still using these Western publications for inspiration specifically in Sibylla's editorial department. And further on that, so this this whole notion that we talked about, the Werktätige Frau, um, the woman that was probably part of the intelligentsia or of a higher class, the lady with the feather boa, quote unquote, she was replaced completely by a working woman wearing a hard hat because the new goal for the ideal woman was further exemplified by a new series that came out in 1967 of that year called Frau von Heute or Woman of Today. And not to confuse that with the publication Frau von Heute, which was its own entity. And this didn't, this not only propagandistically focused on workers and women who were strong, confident, self-sufficient, highly educated, who may have been part of the, the intellectual elite, but they were really, you know, they were really the engineers, artists, lawyers, directors, and writers of their time. And that's, that's interesting to note for, you know, the 60s in East Germany. That usually, I mean, all women had jobs and all women had most likely, most likely had to work. And that was definitely being accredited and they were, they were, that was being shown in magazines because they were really an essential role model. And usually these women were strongly politically aligned with the SED. Now, with that, the political climate of the late 60s and the GDR was hardening, and there was less tolerance for any sort of ideological deviation. This naturally resulted in a lack of political control within Zabilla and negatively affected the motivation of the editorial team. Also, in, this, in 67, Carole Calais and Roger Mellis join as staff photographers. And the polit- 
Borough Bureau passes a resolution for the construction of a giant synthetic fiber processing plant for polyester and polyurethane. And this was to take place. The two, the, the two major factories were going to be the VEB textile in Cottbus and then an expansion of the chemical fiber plant in Kolben. It was a huge undertaking, a lot of money poured into it, about 1.5 billion marks to build these plants. And of course, as we've noticed in the, with this podcast and with this story of the development of the East German fashion industry, it was laced with contradictions. Because in order to successfully master this, and given that East Germany's had a six about a six-year lag be- between the West in terms of technological advancements. Of course, the Politburo had to order machines from the West. Alone in Cottbus, the, that facility required a 16 million mark um, Western knitting machines. And by the time this chemical fiber wave had caught on in Eastern Germany, it was subsiding in the West. So a few facts and figures about the influence of and the influence of synthetics in East Germany. In 1967, you had a 9.6 increase of synthetic fiber production. By 1969, it jumped to 36%, and then by 1980, 90%. Now, not only was there a demand for synthetic textiles, but also there was a huge demand for um, clothes designed and marketed towards youth culture and teenagers. And in 66, 1966, there was a brief fashion show for the youth, sort of the youth or for teenagers. And there were events like that jazz and rock and roll contest in Leipzig, which I talked about uh, two episodes ago. And they really wanted to drive and really wanted to drive the attention of teenagers and speak to their their needs as, as best as they could. So the German Fashion Institute produced 80 new models or samples, and these were supposed to be versatile and easy to wear to work and to school. And these were supposed to be part of what was going to be the Youth Fashion Center, sort of this greater initiative, which turned out to be a few stores. It was um, the brand ambassador, sort of the the figure, the figurehead for this was Chris Durek, who was a really famous pop star, or as the genre would be, she was a big Schlager star. Schlager in German can best be described as sort of German country music. If you ever go to an Oktoberfest, You've probably heard tons of Schlager music. So 1968. It was estimated that 64% of women sewed their own clothes. And again, we're going to keep revisiting this issue of homemade DIY um, sewing, sewing your own collections for that matter. Market researchers found that many women of larger sizes had to make their own clothes because of a lack of size diversity. Researchers also found that GDR households spent 210 to 300 million hours per year hand knitting. And further on the youth culture element that made itself into pretty visible into Zabilla, 
with the article teenager, which we talked about last week, was this this new one on their fifth their fifth their fifth issue of 1968 called Halbstarke auf Motorrad. And this basically translates to half as strong on a motorcycle. And it entertains rather dull and petty discussions about dexterity and what's a good length for a miniskirt when you're on a motorcycle. And as I said, at this time, um, you had the Jugendmodezentrum, or these youth fashion centers, which were a chain of stores that opened. At the same time, um, in, at the Zibilla, chief editor, there was a new chief editor, editor-in-chief, and that was Yvonne Fryer, Fryer, who came from Für dich, Here For You magazine. And she becomes the new, the new head and this really marks a further sign of a chain that there was going to be, first of all, there's going to, expa- going to be an expansion of the cultural section of the publication and emphasized this through the use of like a special paper and then a general reduction in the magazine format. Now, 1969 marked a new direction for Zibille and their opening letter from the editorial team announced that, and I've tried to translate this to the best of my abilities. Quote, we will expand topics in Zibilla because we see a broad field of activity from our, from our development of a socialist way of life. And with that, these culture pages I just talked about had included literature, art reviews, museum exhibits, fashion illustrations, and an advice column called Psyche and Mental Health. In the fifth issue of Zibilla, Arno Fischer photographs models on the roof of East Berlin's city hotels, city and hotels building. And in the background, you can see scaffolds of these grid structures. Now, during the second half of the 60s was really an architectural revitalization of East Berlin as it was to serve, as it was to visibly serve as the new seat of head seat of the government. The eastern half was to symbolize the urban core of modernity and social power of the social of the state. And these reconstructed buildings in Alexander Alexanderplatz never really came into this picture but would make them throughout other editorials. At this time also you had Zibilla Bergmann joins as a photographer and really goes on to define the visual language and the she made a huge impression I think she's she's definitely a legacy in terms of fashion photography photography and in terms of German photography and she goes on to work her way throughout into the 80s of Zibilla and she's really known for her portraits that evoke this mystery and austere beauty similar to, but also different than Arno Fischer, who later became her partner. And finally, in 1969, um, you had a lot of, it continued, where you still had a lot of customer complaints about the sizing and availability, especially when it came to the GDR's youth fashion program, which we just talked about. One woman, um, Elsa, quoted, said that, where does one find the offering for, where is there an offering for a working woman between the ages of 40 and 60 who absolutely, who's absolutely not fat and old-fashioned, but slender and wants to dress modernly? 
1970, you have Günther Rossler, you have in Sibylle, Günther Rossler does a editorial called Mode rund um den Alex, or Fashion Around the Alex, or Alexander Platz. And this showed multiple perspectives of the city under construction, also its new face, and but from sidewalks. Now, generally speaking, other architectural elements included that you'll see in his photography and throughout where you had the Berlin television tower, which I'm sure you've seen pictures of, and that was used repeatedly. But more importantly, you also had the use of the Plattenbau in as an architectural element that was also seen in fashion photography. And I'm going to do a separate podcast specifically on fashion photography and architecture and its relationship in East Germany. Now, the Plattenbau, um, in this context, Platte uh, means panel, which was usually made of concrete, and Bau means building. This was a standard apartment building complex that you'd see throughout GDR and remains iconic as an East German almost relic. Um, it's, but a lot of these are still up, and you can also, you know, tour them throughout Berlin and see them, you know, even in, in parts of, I've seen them in parts of, of Dresden and Dessau. And if you're a fan of brutalism, I highly recommend looking up Platten, Plattenbau and I'll, I'll have some pictures up on the blog. It's really, it's really fascinating. Now, by 1970s, I had mentioned the political climate was generally tense within East Germany. And then on top of it, at a fashion magazine or at any publication, it was going to be even more tense. And it was, things were really going to heighten. And so by that time, um, Dorothea Melles, who I mentioned last week's episode, she was a fashion editor at Sibylle, decides to leave in favor of a job at VEB or VEB Exquisite. So she'd be running a lot of the production or a lot of the production and the fashions that were created through Exquisite. And I'd just like to finish by talking a, a little bit about her introduction in uh, Sibylle, um, her book Sibylle, Modefotografien or Fashion Photographs. 1962 to 1994 and she gives a beautiful introduction where she talks about her time in Zabilla and these are some some final notes that I think are interesting and really encapsulate everything we've talked about thus far so she says that in East Germany fashion photos in the GDR really had a different position in the East as they did in the West where you would have a photographer who was really caught up between art and commerce in the East, the photographer had no commitment or mandate to feature the sale of collections. And GDR fashion photography was really supposed to inspire and show a facet of humanity. It wasn't really that much about selling clothes because another aspect that, that she, another thing that she had mentioned was that you weren't really supposed to sell collections, but because you couldn't, but you could speak to trends. So that was an, an interesting segue is to focus on the photography and focus on this intimacy you have with the photography as opposed to the fact that they're not selling clothes, they're just suggesting trends. And then in addition to that, she had mentioned that they had often always provided patterns because all of these clothes that were shown 
from the VEB you couldn't necessarily get. They were usually unavailable, and so patterns were sort of an easy, easy way out of that. And at this time in the 70s, um, on the retail, on the high-end fashion retail side, at Exquisite, stagnation really turned to struggle by the 70s. It was, Exquisite was considered the, quote, last possibility for satisfaction of a specific wish. By the middle of the decade, stores signed production contracts that would only last them till the end of the year. And part of that was due to the fact that there was really no incentive for factories to produce something specifically for Exquisite when they could just produce something, quote, hochmodisch, or this, this concept of highly fashionable, which they were producing anyway. So that is pretty much wraps up everything from 1970 and anything that I've missed, I'll review in the blog post for Friday and um, make sure to check back for Got a Hot Minute on Friday and I'll see you next week. Thank you. And welcome to Got a Hot Minute, a bonus episode of the East German Fashion History Podcast, where I recommend books and other sources dedicated to the study of fashion in the German Democratic Republic. Today's going to be rather short since I'll be reviewing Off the Wall, Fashion from East Germany 1964 to 1980, a coffee table book featuring 95 photographic fashion images from the GDR. A little about the author and photographer, Gunther Rübitsch, which are all of his images in the book. So I couldn't find out much about him, except for the fact that he had another book which he co-authored called Kunstlichtfotografie, or Artificial Lighting Photography. The book was pub- Off the Wall was published in 2005 by Bloomsbury, And there are no table of contents, but there's an introduction which I'll read. So here it goes. East Germany may be one of the most remembered for the activities of the Stasi. For now, for this time, it's a secret flirtation with fashion is exposed. Despairing of the drab, colorless apparel surrounding them, photographer Gunther Rubich hired local models chosen the locations that inspired him, oil factories, worker canteens, concrete office blocks, and set about creating his own unique and daring style. Off the Wall brings some of the Deutsche Demokratische Republik's most exotic fashion imagery to light, from blindingly bright mod go-go girls to demure country peasants posed with that most German of animals, the llama. These images run counter to everything we imagined went on behind the Berlin Wall. Was it intended as propaganda? A move to counter bourgeois Western values? Aspirational workwear? We'll never know. What is certain is that what was produced in earnest is now a catalog of camp. Until recently, these fabulous spring, summer, and autumn winter collections have been hidden from the Western eyes. But now, finally unearthed and collected together in this unique book, these glorious icons of a lost world are truly celebrated. 
So the images are really quite fun, candid, ironic, and unexpected. I think this is a great primary source for some of the showing of more youthful and bold styles produced in the GDR, and it's also a great rebuttal to proponents of the argument that East German fashion was only drab clothing. However, it would be interesting to know the provenance for the outfits pictured, how many samples of each were produced, and where was it available to shop? Or were some of these home-sewn and from patterns, and where did they get these patterns? So a lot of these questions are unanswered, and I'd love to know more. Now, while I understand the nature of this book with its juxtaposition of images is supposed to be campy and comical, for fashion historians and researchers, it would really be helpful to have at least some context or captions about each garment with information about the pieces featured, the shoot location, and the model. I don't know if I'd recommend this book for solid hard facts, dates and names, but definitely for enriching one sartorial lexicon of fashion, especially textiles of East Germany from that era. If you're looking to get a glimpse at some of the images from this book, they are included in this week's accompanying blog post in the link description. And that's it for today. So I'll see you on Tuesday where we'll look at 70s irreverence grounded with a DIY sensibility and a swirling of dizzying prints. Danke and have a great weekend.